Welcome back to Driving Forces, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics that matter to you. I am your co-host, and I'm glad to say co-host once again, because joining me every week once again, who you heard solely last week when I was off, is the amazing Celeste Katz-Marston back. Now, we are not in the studio together, but we are also FaceTiming so we could see each other's facial reactions. It feels like we're right next to each other. The only thing we need is to be able to see Reggie at this time as well, but hopefully we'll be able to do that soon in the future. Celeste, welcome back. Jeff Simmons, it is a pleasure to be here with you on Driving Forces today and always very glad to be back. I do feel with this setup that we have right now, I feel like I'm John Kane because when we used to walk into the studio when he was wrapping up his show, he had so many tech things going on. So we're getting close there. Celeste has an amazing radio setup in her uh, in her home right now. I am very impressed by this, so I'm hoping that, and thanks to Linda for advising me on how to set up my system, that I'm getting a little better with my audio quality, too. Absolutely. You sound great to me, Jeff, and I'm really glad to be back with you. Uh, last week, we had a, a program. I was flying solo for a little bit. Uh, we had a really good discussion about trust in the media, and we got some great, great calls. So a little bit later in, uh, in the program, just want to remind everybody that we will be taking your calls. Looking forward to hearing from you. So if you want to just jot the number down, again, it's going to be a little bit later on. We have some uh, a good conversation coming up before that, but the number will be 212 two zero nine two eight seven seven two one two two oh nine two eight seven seven and one programming note we were hoping to have the new york city public advocate jumani williams on with us tonight they were holding out to the last second because he is under the weather they say it is nothing serious uh they uh, that was one of the first questions i asked uh they said he is not feeling well he will be joining us in january they immediately asked me for another date so he was not able to be on but one thing we have wanted to do, and I know that our colleagues on Wednesday nights, uh, Max and Murphy, do this as well, is we try to bring you conversations with the declared mayoral candidates here in New York City. So we're happy to have, in just a few minutes, uh, Sean Donovan on with us, who just announced this week he was on our show on Driving Forces a few months ago. Uh, but now, as a declared candidate, as of this week, he's coming back on to talk a little about his priorities. And I understand from Reggie... Uh, that he's already on the line with us. So coming out of that, Celeste and I will discuss a little more about what's been in the news today and also tell you about two polls that have come out this week that you're going to really want to hear uh, some of these results, some of these findings uh, by Quinnipiac about uh, the president-elect and about our current president. So with that, let me get to our first guest. And uh, he just announced this week that he is officially a candidate to become uh, the mayor of New York City. Uh, there is a very crowded field already. Some of the folks you've heard here already on WBAI last night, you were able to hear City Group Executive Ray, Ray McGuire on with Max and Murphy. We've also had Diane Morales. Maya Wiley is expected to be on. Possibly next week, you've regularly heard from others like Scott Stringer and Eric Adams. But today... Celeste and I are bringing you Sean Donovan, formerly a cabinet secretary under President Barack Obama and commissioner under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. A little about him. He grew up on the Upper East Side, now lives in Brooklyn and is a first time candidate for elective office. Uh, but he has been in public service for much of the last several decades. From 2009 to 2017, he was President Obama's Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development and then became the White House Budget Director. 
From 2004 to 2009, he led the New York City Department of Housing, Preservation and Development, overseeing housing policies. And we know how significant housing issues are here in the city and, and in the country right now. He officially launched his campaign for mayor of New York City this Tuesday and with a number of other candidates throwing their support uh, other mayors throwing their support behind him as he raises funds and appears at candidate forums. He took some time out of his day to join Celeste and me here on WBAI today. Welcome back to Driving Forces. It's great to be with you, Jeff. Uh, real pleasure to be back. So obviously a lot is going on in the news since we last spoke. I think when I had spoken with you, we were kind of in that uh, when uh, COVID-19 had dipped and now we're seeing a surge once again. Uh, so we're, we will talk with you a little about this. Uh, but primarily what I wanted to find out is given how many names there are in this race already, how are you going to distinguish yourself? Well, look, I'm unique in this race because I'm a lifelong New Yorker who was called to serve this city and this country in some of the greatest moments of crisis we've ever seen. I, I was housing commissioner, as you said, in the wake of 9-11. Uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden asked me to be housing secretary in the midst of the worst housing crisis of our lifetimes. And when Sandy hit our shores and cost so many of our neighbors and friends, their businesses, their homes, even their lives. President Obama asked me to lead the federal recovery effort to build back better and stronger and safer. And then he asked me to step up and manage the $4 trillion federal budget. And I was able to reduce that budget deficit that we faced faster than at any time since World War II while still investing in key priorities like healthcare and housing and homelessness, rebuilding our infrastructure, putting folks to work. And, and that really is unique compared to any other candidate in this race. So, Mr. Secretary, and if you're just joining us, we are speaking to a newly declared mayoral candidate, Sean Donovan. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York. Uh, so, Mr. Secretary, you said in your, uh, you know, in your introduction to the people who want to find out more about your candidacy that you're really running to kind of repair what you called the torn fabric of New York City. I'm just curious as to, you know, what does that mean to you exactly, and who do you think is responsible for for those divisions? Well, Celeste, it's such an important question. And um, in addition to my service to President Obama, Vice President Biden, that I just talked about in the cabinet, I'm a lifelong New Yorker who grew up in this city during a different time of crisis. I saw people sleeping on our streets. I, I saw neighborhoods like the South Bronx, where I announced on uh, Tuesday crumbling, literally burning to the ground. And it, it lit a fire in me to go to work on behalf of, of my city. And one of the things I saw as a kid, one of the things I felt was that, as I said in my speech, our civic fabric was tear, torn and even breaking. And part of that is we need a mayor at this moment for all New Yorkers. We need a mayor who's not going to demonize or divide us, but to pull everyone together. But the other thing that I said is we've got a longer term challenge that too many New Yorkers have been left behind. We've seen this in our in this crisis. And so one of the things I proposed was that we need for the first time in the city's history, a chief equity officer reporting directly to the mayor who's going to make sure that every 
part of our city. Every one of our residents is part of that civic fabric that we have to weave in the threads of every race, uh, every language, every sexual orientation, all the different uh, threads of New York City into a fabric. And it's only in that way we're going to be able to heal this city and, and make this city what it should be. Uh, and that means not just repairing and rebuilding, but actually reimagining a city that works for everyone. And obviously, you have your own vision of uh, what the city should be like or what the, the problem spots are. Uh, now, I remember covering when uh, Mayor de Blasio first ran uh, for the top job in the city. He spoke about this sort of tale of two cities of, you know, haves and have nots of people uh, who were doing very well and people who were sort of uh, being left behind. Uh, you know, just wondering what you think about his tenure as mayor and uh, what you think he might have done well and what obviously you might think he uh, has not done so well on that uh, uh, that we still have to deal with. Well, look, I think, again, what separates me in this campaign is that I've not only talked this talk, but I've, I've walked this walk. I, I, I've been all over the city talking with folks and what I hear over and over again is that New Yorkers are hungry for a public servant, not a politician. And what's unique about me is that I've not just talked about the inequity in our city. Uh, I've been working on it for decades. When, when I announced on Tuesday, Johnny Ray Youngblood, legendary pastor in Brooklyn, who I met uh, almost 30 years ago and started working with to build Nehemiah Homes uh, in Brownsville and East New York in the South Bronx where folks living in public housing could buy their first home, build wealth. Those are the kinds of efforts. Uh, Ana Vincente, who was there with me, uh, she's a legendary leader and activist in the South Bronx who works for Nos Quedamos. Again, somebody I met more than 25 years ago and have worked with to really build the kind of city, to build equity in neighborhoods that are, that are so important. And that's why I proposed uh, on Tuesday what I call the 15-minute neighborhood. Now, we have wealthy communities in New York where this already is true, where within 15 minutes you can find health care, you can find fresh food, you can find a park, you can find a great school, and you can find a, a chance to get ahead. That has to be true in every single neighborhood of New York City. And again, I'm the only candidate in this race that's been working for decades in this city with communities to make sure that that kind of change happens, not to them, but with them and for them. So uh, I do want to get to a topic that has been in the papers this week. Uh, there's a litigation that was just filed. I'm talking about ranked choice voting because, uh, you know, this is going to debut early in 2021. Uh, and we've had some significant resistance recently to this. Uh, but I do want to note that 74% of New Yorkers had, New York City voters had approved ranked choice voting back in 2019. Where do you stand on this? Do you feel it's being rushed? Do you feel this is the right time for this to begin? Well, look, let's just step back on this. I'm for more democracy. I'm for more, more people voting and more people having a say in the future of this city. And what's deeply encouraging to me is at this moment, when we saw the most divisive president in our nation's history, 
uh, lose. We saw millions of new voters. And in New York City, we saw turnout increase by uh, almost 10 percent. So I'm for things that are going to increase that turnout even further. I think ranked choice voting, if implemented well, will do that. That's what we've seen in other places. The key is we need to make sure that all of our elected officials at the Board of Elections are working to make sure that New Yorkers know how ranked choice voting works and make sure that they understand the choices that they that they have under this system. That's going to be key. Getting out in, into communities, educating folks, and making sure ranked choice voting lives up to its promise, which is that more people will vote and have a say in the future of this city. So, Secretary Donovan wanted to ask you about something, obviously, that's been on all of our minds for a very long time. And, of course, that's the COVID, the pandemic crisis that we're facing right now. And uh, we've heard some, uh, you know, some mixed uh, mixed signals from people or uh, I should say uh, a divergence of opinion uh, in terms of what should be done to help New Yorkers stay safe from COVID. If that's uh, more closing, if it's strategic uh, shutdowns, if it's uh keeping kids in school or letting people go to work or, um, you know, that sort of thing. So maybe you could just give uh, our listeners like a real quick, like a thumbnail of sort of what do you think needs to happen now as we look at this this sort of holiday surge, holiday-related surge in COVID cases uh, ahead of uh, anybody seeing a vaccine? Yeah, Celeste, uh, it's such an important question. And, and as I said in my announcement, um, Look, I, I know this disease personally. I, I had COVID in March. I was very, very fortunate that it was a mild case. But I, I know what it means to pick up the phone and quarantine and call a loved one and pray that I haven't gotten them sick. I, I, I have, like all New Yorkers, friends and neighbors that lost their lives. And we have to make sure we do everything possible. I am unique in this race that I have sat in the situation room with Dr. Fauci, with President Obama, Vice President Biden, with our military leaders, because three weeks after I took office as budget director, Ebola hit. And we went to work successfully to make sure that an international threat didn't become a global pandemic that cost tens of thousands of, of New Yorkers their lives. So I uniquely in this race have the experience and understanding of what we need to be doing in a moment like this. To be very specific, we need a mayor who knows how to get schools open. We had time. Our infection rate was low enough. We should have been able to open schools in September. We should be able uh, to manage that Safely, I was critical of the mayor when he decided to close at the 3%. He's since changed his mind uh, to reopen, but, but that is absolutely critical. And we need much more innovative strategies to get our small businesses open. When I was, uh, saw this crisis coming on early this year, I raised over a million dollars and created an effort called Common Table, which got restaurants cooking again in the hardest hit neighborhoods and used innovative technology that allowed seniors, uh, folks who were sick, to order on their phones to get those meals delivered directly to their homes. Look, this is not rocket science. We need a a mayor who knows how to roll up his sleeves and get to work on on behalf of New Yorkers. I quoted Mayor LaGuardia in my uh, speech on Tuesday in saying, 
There's no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the trash. We need a mayor who puts people ahead of politics and ideology and knows how to manage and lead in times of crisis. And that's who I am. And just one quick follow-up to that. Uh, in in terms of managing and leading during a crisis, obviously the mayor will have to work with the governor. Just wondering how you think you'll be able to work with Governor Cuomo, given that sometimes he and uh, Mayor de Blasio have not been on the same page, to put it very mildly, when it comes to COVID, but when it came to other relationships between the city and the state as well. Well, look, um, again, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, what I would say here is don't just take my word for it. Look at the results that I've gotten. I've been able to work with Governor Cuomo effectively over my entire career. My first job uh, in public service at HUD was under Andrew Cuomo. Uh, I worked with him effectively then when when Mayor uh, when uh, President Obama asked me to lead the recovery when Sandy hit New York City. I worked very, very effectively with Andrew to be able to get things done. And let's be absolutely clear about this. It is simply unacceptable for the mayor and the governor not to be able to work hand in hand and put New Yorkers first. You know, people say uh, sometimes that they're like toddlers in a sandbox. I have two boys. If my toddlers had behaved like that in the sandbox when they were uh, young, I would never have accepted that. This can't be acceptable to New Yorkers. And we've got to have a mayor again. It puts New Yorkers and people ahead of politics. And we've obviously only got about a minute or two left. Uh, you mentioned having two toddlers. I also hear a little sound effect. Uh, we're, Celeste and I are trying to figure out when the last time a dog was at Gracie Mansion, living at Gracie Mansion. So uh, do you hope to be the first mayor in quite a while to have a dog at Gracie Mansion? <laughs> Absolutely. That's Wiley you hear. And, uh, He's trying to get a word in edgewise, I think. He's so excited about my run and my announcement this week that he's uh, he's trying to get on the show. So well, I guess that answers our other question about whether you would actually live at Gracie Mansion if you became mayor. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've got just about a minute left, and um, I, I'm going to have Celeste uh, ask the final question, but I do want to ask one very quick question in talking about Cuomo and we ta- in talking in considering the uh, – High unemployment rate, the, uh, the uh, effect of COVID-19 on our economy and how many New Yorkers are, are finding it difficult to make rent payments right now. The, uh, the moratorium here in New York State on, uh, on rent, uh, is expected to ex- expire at the end of this month. Should it be extended? Absolutely it should. And in fact, uh, again, What's unique about my experience is that I have been deeply involved over the summer and even in the last few days talking to uh, leaders in the Biden and Harris incoming administration, talking to leaders in Congress about how to make sure that New Yorkers are protected. We have a federal moratorium on evictions that's expiring at the end of this month. And we have a potential tsunami of evictions that are coming if we don't get that fixed. But we need to go farther than that. We need to get rental assistance that doesn't just kick the can down the road, but makes sure that when the eviction moratorium lapses, that New Yorkers can actually pay their rent. And so I'm the only candidate in this race that can pick up the phone and call uh, a President Biden 
Vice President Harris, who I, I know well uh, as well, who can call all the leaders in Congress because I've worked side by side with them. And my expertise was called, and I testified this summer in front of uh, Congress on how to put together a COVID relief bill. So it is absolutely critical that we get an extension of the moratorium, not just at the state level, but at the federal level. But we also get rental assistance that will help New Yorkers be able to stay in their homes. And then finally, as you're sort of laying out your plans and your vision for uh, you know, what would be your, your time in the mayor's office, uh, have you been able to sort of get yourself to a place where you are able to talk to New Yorkers about what the tax situation would look like? I know this is a really common question, but I think it really weighs heavily uh, on people, whether it's uh, property taxes or other types of taxes. Um, you know, you want to expand a lot of programs, provide more services, provide more equity. That's that costs money. So do you have a sense of um, whether you would have to see some tax increases uh, under your tenure as mayor? Well, Celeste, um, I wrote an op-ed in the Daily News about this. I'm the only candidate that's been specific about how to take on the impending budget crisis. And it really comes out of my experience leading the $4 trillion federal budget at a time when we were facing record deficits uh, when President Obama took office. And we were able to dramatically reduce those deficits while still investing in the key priorities we needed um, in this country and in this city. And so what I've been very clear about is that the false choice that Mayor de Blasio proposed of either drastic layoffs of city employees or borrowing is exactly that. It's a false choice. What we need to be doing is have a mayor who can work effectively with Washington, D.C., get the help that we need, as I was just talking about. Think about this. We in New York State send $26.5 billion each year more to Washington, D.C. than we get back in services. Now is the time that we need a mayor who can get the help that New Yorkers need and deserve in our time of crisis. But we also need a mayor who knows how to manage government much more efficiently and effectively we have many, many areas where we could be lowering health care costs. Uh, prescription drug costs are way too high in the city. That costs the city government an enormous amount of money. And we also need to do things, if you look at corrections, for example, we're spending over half a million dollars a year per prisoner in, uh, at Rikers Island. You know, I worked with President Obama to try to close the most expensive prison in the world, Guantanamo. Rikers is the second most expensive. And instead of uh, those kind of costs, we ought to be reinvesting in the kind of solutions that help communities. Uh, homeless shelters is another thing. I led the strategy for President Obama that dramatically reduced street and family homelessness. It, in 80 cities and states, we ended veteran homelessness, not reduced it and ended it. And guess what? It's actually less expensive to solve the problem because we're spending billions and billions of dollars on shelters each year. And we're getting bad results. Uh, folks end up, if they're on the streets, getting their health care in emergency rooms and other things that are much more expensive. If we reimagine our right to shelter in New York City as a right to housing, we could dramatically improve the lives of homeless folks. We could improve quality of life in the city and we could save money. So those are the kinds of innovative solutions that I'm not just talking about, I've actually accomplished in my career. And those are the kinds of things we need a mayor uh, to be able to accomplish right here in New York. 
So, Sean Donovan, candidate for mayor of the city of New York, where can people find out more about you and about your campaign? Well, just go right to the uh, to my website at Sean for NYC. That's S H A U N F O R N Y C dot com. Uh, we have a fantastic first launch video that everybody should should look at and start to look at, at my ideas for the city. I'm going to be the candidate of ideas. We have uh, over 200 people who are working with us, community leaders, uh, thought leaders, activists, helping us put together the broadest and deepest vision for the future of this city. Um, we're going to start rolling out those plans tomorrow. And this is a chance to really be part of a conversation about the future of the city. Uh, so go to Sean for NYC and learn more about me, but learn more about the ideas that you've helped contributed to, to make this city uh, a city that works for everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today here on Driving Forces on WBAI. My pleasure to be with you again. I look forward to being back very soon. Thanks. So that was Sean Donovan, candidate for mayor, one of a number of candidates for mayor. We had two announced this week. Another, uh, Catherine Garcia, who had worked for Mayor de Blasio. You might know her from when she oversaw the sanitation department. Uh, she just announced as well. We're hoping to have her on later this month. Uh, phone lines are open right now before our next guest in the second half hour. Please give us a call. Let us know what you thought of what Sean Donovan talked about, but also what else is on your mind today. 212 212- Two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, that number is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. What would you like the next mayor to concentrate on? That's something I would definitely be very interested in hearing from people about. Two one two two zero nine two eight. 77 Celeste Katz Marston, that's me and my co-host Jeff Simmons. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. And for our listeners, of course, I had to ask the dog question because, you know, Celeste and I both have dogs. They sometimes interrupt us when we're doing our shows. And, you know, I have my dogs in the front room right now. So that's why it's a little quieter. But as I pointed out on some previous shows, Unfortunately, I do live near Elmhurst Hospital, so the frequency is not as much as it used to be, but for quite a while, they're nearly on every show at Hear Ambulance Sounds. Yeah, you know, look, that's uh, that's definitely something that uh, I would much rather hear a dog than, than uh, hear the sirens. Absolutely. 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877, driving forces here on WBAI. Uh, have you thought a lot about the mayor's race or, you know, Certainly, what would you like uh, somebody to do uh, differently than what Mayor de Blasio is doing now? Obviously, people have a lot of thoughts about how Mayor de Blasio is running the city before, during, and after, I presume, uh, the COVID crisis. Uh, it's been a tough year for New York City. There's been a, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of uncertainty. What do you want your next mayor to focus on? 212-209-2877. And Celeste, that's why I'm glad that Sean had talked about Rikers, mentioned Rikers for a moment there, because I do think uh, social justice and equities are going to be some of the dominant issues. So I think we have some people on the uh, on the line right now. We're going to take some of your calls again. That number 212-209-2877. We'll go to our first call. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Uh, this is Doug from Staten Island. How are you? Good, Doug. How are you doing tonight? Pretty well, pretty well. Enjoyed the interview there. 
Um, I was wondering, um, you know, I, I always hear people when they talk about what are they going to do about the shortfall that, well, we're going to go to the federal government. That seems to be the backfall there. And as Mr. Cuomo uh, happens to say all the time, and, oh, listen, you know, what are we going to get, a few billion dollars? That's not going to close the gap. As though, you know, closing the gap by some portion doesn't amount to something. And why you shouldn't, you know, think about people like Bezos, who I understand made $85 billion during the uh, COVID crisis. He's now a 200 billionaire. So when you find people that are shy about taxing the rich, I, I begin to wonder, also, during the housing crisis, you know, Obama turned around and uh, showed that he, uh, like he said in the uh, interview in The Hill in 2012, that he considers himself a moderate Republican in his viewpoints. That's what Obama said in The Hill in 2012 in, in November. You can check it out. Um, okay. I'll, I'll basically, Mr. Donovan said that he was great during the housing crisis. Why, if they wanted to make the banks whole, didn't they simply forward Funnel that through the housing people, keep them in their homes, keep, keep the people that were uh, uh, taking mm-hmm. care of these, these loans there. And then he could have accomplished keeping the banks safe and whole and creditworthy and keeping the people in there. But instead, they gave it directly to the banks and they kicked the people out of their houses. So I don't think that's a stellar record. Doug from Staten Island, thank you so much for giving us a call in today. We've got a few other callers on the line. We want to make sure we hear from them as well. You are listening to Driving Forces with me, Jeff Simmons, and my amazing co-host back full-time with us, Celeste Katz-Marston on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. We're going to go to the next call. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what is on your mind? Hello. Hi. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, great. Okay, yes, Janine. Um, I'm from Brooklyn. Um, well, I wanted to say I didn't get to hear all your show, but um, I was quite disturbed about what I saw that went on in Staten Island about the bar. I thought that was disgusting, um, what that gentleman did because they closed him down. If you didn't want to be closed down, then why, you know, these are the people that don't wear masks. Those are the Trumpsters. Um, that's number one. Number two, I, I, I just found out my brother in Staten Island, his hair salon was closed down. Why was it closed down? I'm walking here in my neighborhood. They're open. Is that because most of Staten Island don't wear masks? And then today I got really disturbed with Gary Knoll's show. You know, he's my health guru. But then he had somebody on talking about... Um, how the masks are, you know, that, that, you know, it's all to keep people, um, you know, indoors and, and not socializing and all that. What is this controversy? You have to wear a mask. Okay, do you know, I saw on a show last night in, on the island, all over, Jamaica, all over. Do you know those cops, God bless them, I mean, I don't even go that way, they tell you to wear your mask, okay? They arrest people without wearing masks. So here you are, have people complaining that, oh, yeah, my brother called Cuomo. And uh, listen, I'm not into politics. I'm happy we got that moron out of office. But my brother today called Cuomo and um, wow. and de Blasio Gestapo's because they, no, no, if you're a hot zone, you're going to get closed down. Tell your people who live there to wear their masks. Am I right or am I wrong? 
Look, Janine, and thank you for your call, Janine. Obviously, I would say that if we learn anything from this hour of driving forces, it's don't mess with Janine from Brooklyn because <laughs> you, you you will get the horns. But yeah, very very interesting. And Jeff, you're going to tell us a little bit about just real quickly that uh, the Staten Island incident that uh, that Janine was referring to. I, uh, look, I followed some of the coverage. I, I, I watched it on New York One. I read it in the newspapers about the uh, the bar owner that uh, they, you know, defied authorities, said they were not going to close down. And then after uh, it was, I guess, shut down that uh, at the first moment went back and there was a giant crowd of people inside, many not wearing, majority that I could see in the footage, not wearing masks. I think it was even an Instagram post from the attorney for uh, the bar owner showing everyone inside. It just surprised me uh, to see, because I do care about the health of the people around me. And I would be, that would be what would be going through my mind at that time. I know we've got other calls and a guest that's going to be calling in any moment. So yeah. let's go to a third call quickly. Uh, welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what is on your mind? Yes, my name is Dave. I'm calling about the uh, tale of two cities that de Blasio has talked about. However, the tale of two cities um, in my in regard to that is about, on one hand, you have people working without any benefits, are not unionized, the majority, overwhelming draw of New York City. And then on the other side, you have the city employees, the police, the education, the sanitation. Everyone, you know, is getting uh, pensions and health benefits and everything, you know, everything, pretty good salaries. They don't have to, you know, and, and there's a tale of two cities where, People, majority, don't have that, and these unions are dictating policy. We had Shea telling, quote, telling everybody that he's not going to do the Thanksgiving, whatever, a protocol that Cuomo said. So you have an example of teachers dictating that 3% that was dictated by the Department of Education, the teachers' union, the principals' union. Now, in the early 70s, when we had the financial crisis, the financial board took over. And that's what's going to happen again, because they're going to raise taxes on people. And look, they haven't cut any of the police. They haven't cut any of the um, sanitation. They haven't cut any of the uh, city employees that de Blasio blew up. We have his wife at Thrive throwing away $1.3 billion, and nobody knows where that's going. So you have a, you have a situation where, unlike the 70s, where there was no you know, negotiations, take it or leave it, they should be cut. You know, de Blasio should cut every city employee, every that they can. There's no need to do things like recycling now, okay? Recycling all goes into the landfill. It's a lie, okay? Almost nothing goes to the recycling. It's all trucked out and dumped in landfills because there's no market for paper and plastic. There's no market anymore. So we have to have the elected officials responsible and not allow unions to dictate policy, because that's what's happening. Okay, thanks so much, Dave. Really appreciate your call. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, New York, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And so what we're talking about here today, we're talking about a lot of different issues uh, that are related to COVID. We just a short time ago asked a newly declared mayoral candidate, Sean Donovan, to talk a little bit about what his approach would be to keeping New Yorkers safe and secure during the COVID crisis, obviously economically 
sex, though, are a big part of that. And one thing that has been really on people's mind lately has been, um, you know, the potential for uh, even tighter restrictions on things like indoor dining. Now, look, I understand. Everybody understands here. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, a smart man, understands that, look, we want to avoid situations where people are congregating, spending a lot of time indoors. But at the same time, look, there are a lot of people uh, in New York City, New York State, in this country that are employed in the restaurant business. You know, these people need to make a living, too. They need to provide for their families. So, you know, we're going to talk about what what is going to be the actual effect of restrictions or bans on indoor dining and uh, how they're applied and how long they last. Um, joining us now to talk about that, we have Mike Watley. He's the vice president for state and local affairs for the National Restaurant Association. Uh, the association was founded in 1919. It's the leading business group for the restaurant industry. Uh, includes one million restaurant and food service outlets and represents an workforce of more than 15 million employees. Uh, and he can tell us a little bit about the association. They sent a letter to uh, congressional leadership talking about a survey uh, that shows the continued business deterioration in the restaurant industry because of the pandemic. So Mike Watley is with us here. Welcome to Driving Forces, Mike. Thanks for being with us. This afternoon, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. So tell us a little bit. You you did a survey recently uh, where you found out uh, about what was going on from about 6,000 restaurant operators. You know, what what are you hearing out there? What What's really going on? Unfortunately, I wish I had better news, but the situation for restaurants continues to, to get worse. And as we enter the winter and cold weather and unfortunately increased dining restrictions or dining bans across the country, we're continuing to see the situation get worse for restaurateurs. So based upon this nationwide survey, what we found is that 110,000 restaurants, or roughly 17% of all pre-COVID restaurants, have closed, either permanently or long-term at this point, which is a real bad situation for the industry. These aren't brand-new restaurants that just failed because they weren't successful. On average, these restaurants were open for 16 years or more, and sadly, 48% of those who close have said they are unlikely to stay in the industry. So we're losing an entire generation of restaurateurs because of this crisis. And it's just, it's very sad to see. And we're just worried about what the winter may hold, especially if we don't see immediate action by the federal government to help provide some additional aid. And I'm glad you mentioned that because we've witnessed the competing proposals between Democratic and Republican leaders. So how does this get resolved and what does the industry need from Congress to get through this current spike in cases amid the colder weather? Sure. The most helpful thing for the industry would be a restaurant-specific fund that is available to restaurateurs of all sizes. But we realize that in these most recent net round of negotiations, what is more likely to happen is a second round of the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, which was passed initially in the spring and worked for roughly eight weeks in terms of payroll and providing expenses, but it wasn't enough. It's on the table now as a part of these negotiations that are happening right now. It, it ultimately isn't enough. It's not a silver bullet for the industry, but it's an important down payment for the industry. We want them to pass a second round of PPP now before they go on the holiday recess and then come back um, under the new administration, the new Congress, and do additional aid. But it's really essential that something get done now, because if Congress goes on recess for the holidays, we're looking at late January, even early February, 
before we see meaningful activity from Congress. And restaurants can't wait. It's getting cold. We're seeing more dining restrictions and more restaurateurs are going to continue to close absent federal aid and federal aid that happens very quickly in the near term. And we're speaking with uh, Mike Watley from the National Restaurant Association here on WBAI. And Mike, just want to talk to this, you know, for people who are out there listening, they might say, well, look, you know, I uh, the last time I went to even the diner on my corner, a cheeseburger cost like 10 or 15 bucks. How can they have no money? How can they be, uh, you know, how can they be in such uh, tight financial straits? I think, you know, one thing to ask you about is, you know, there's a uh, somebody who owns a restaurant may be in a position, but you know, there's a lot of people that uh, need to get paid. This must have a real, a real sort of ripple effect in terms of how many people get hurt when a single restaurant gets into trouble. Absolutely. That's a very important part of this conversation. And I would say there's a lot of misperceptions out there about restaurants. The average restaurant profit margin is five to 7%, even in good times. And so it's a razor thin margins. And really, even small changes to the industry or small changes to the economic climate can have a drastic impact on the industry. Now, you throw into play what's happened this year in terms of restaurants not being able to have indoor service at times. And even when they can, it's a really restricted service. It's very, very tough. But the industry pre-COVID was the second largest private sector employer. And based upon the most recent data, the industry is still down 2 million jobs. And unfortunately, that's going to continue to get worse. And earlier in the crisis, it was many more million jobs. And we don't want to go back in that direction. We want restaurants to stay open, to be able to employ our employees, many of whom have been with restaurants for many, many years, and also to be able to serve our customers and serve our communities, because restaurants really are cornerstones of communities across the country, especially in New York. Obviously, during this pandemic, we're all adapting in different ways, including uh, your sector. I'm curious what you think the long-term impacts of this pandemic is going to be on your, on restaurants. I think a couple of things that have, have happened during COVID-19 are going to continue post-pandemic. So the increased emphasis on outdoor dining and expanding outdoor dining into new and creative areas. I think that's largely here to stay. Uh, hopefully, post-pandemic, it won't be out of necessity, but customers like that. Customers like the ability to, to be outside and to experience that. So I think you'll see more outdoor dining in the future. I think you're also going to see additional off-premise consumption of food, be that just traditional food done via takeout or via delivery, but also alcohol delivery and, and off-premise alcohol uh, sales. We're seeing that across the country. I know we're seeing that in New York as well, but those are trends that we're beginning to pick up pre-pandemic in terms of off-premise food and outdoor dining, but there are trends that have really accelerated during this crisis, and I think we will continue to see um, when we're on the other side of the crisis that those trends will continue. And, Mike, what really has been going through my mind this uh, – actually, the last two weeks, more than any other period, I was doing my holiday cards, and I was thinking about this time of year when I'd normally see people. I'd see them at catering halls. I'd see them at restaurants, at holiday parties, but we're told to avoid large gatherings or stay at home and just keep distant. And we're on the cusp of, again, possibly banning indoor dining again here in the city. Uh, what can we do or what should our listeners do? to support local restaurants during the holidays? Most importantly, just patronize your favorite restaurant in any way you can. If you can buy a gift card and give that as a gift to a family member or a friend, that's essential. That provides money that can be useful for restaurants now. Continue doing takeout. You know, Keep on ordering takeout. 
Uh, order it for whatever meal you want. Order it multiple times a day. But also, as long as indoor dining is available, and if, you know, if unfortunately that gets shut down in the near term, uh, that'll be a case. But, you know, as long as indoor dining is available and you feel comfortable doing it, restaurants are open and restaurants are safe. Please come in and patronize us. But really, anything you can do, every dollar matters at this point. Every dollar helps restaurants keep their hardworking uh, employees on payroll. So anything you can do is essential. But also reach out to Congress and tell Congress that they need to act now. We, we launched a, a campaign earlier this week. If you go to restaurantsact.com, it's our main grassroots hub, you can take action very quickly there and tell your member of Congress and your senators that action needs to happen now. They can't go on holiday recess without passing additional aid for the industry. And I'm just curious, Mike, do you get a sense of people who um, are associated with restaurants that are closed either temporarily or permanently? Do we get a sense of where those people are now? Are they, uh, you know, are they seeking unemployment assistance? Are they uh, finding jobs in other industries? Um, are they sort of waiting it out? Are they relying on uh, a partner's income or uh, moving back in with family? Do you get a sense of sort of you know, is there sort of a restaurant diaspora where people have lost this source of income that they relied on? And, you know, how are they getting by? You know, a lot of what we've seen so far is anecdotal. But what we are seeing is an entire generation of not only restaurant operators, as I mentioned at the top, but also restaurant employees who love the industry starting to look elsewhere and starting to look at other industries. And it's really sad because there are so many dedicated employees of the industry who love restaurants. And the longer this crisis continues, and look, we're hearing good news about vaccines, hopefully, and hopefully there is hope on the horizon for us to be past this crisis in the spring or next year at some point. But the longer it takes to get there and the longer this crisis drags out, unfortunately, the more folks who are going to leave this industry. And that's a a real loss, not just for restaurants, but for the entire community. Because restaurants really are a large part of the vibrancy of communities like New York. So, Mike Watley with the National Restaurant Association, where can people find out more about you and about these issues? You know, maybe if they're uh, working in the industry or just want to just want to help. Yes, please go to restaurantsact.com. That's restaurantsplural.act.com to learn more. We've got all kinds of resources up there. And perhaps the most important resource right now is the ability for people to take action with Congress and to take action quickly to tell Congress, now is the time for you to act. We need action before the holidays. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today on Driving Forces here on WBAI. Thank you for having me. And we're going to open up the phone lines for the next few minutes. We can squeeze in a few more calls because we try to get to them. 212-209-2877. That number again is 212 209 2877. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned the Quinnipiac poll that came out today. Um, and I don't know, Celeste, you want me to just give some of those stats for our yeah, listeners? Sure, sure. I was taking a look at that. But yeah, I'm interested to see what, what you pick out because there was some interesting, a lot of interesting stuff in there, actually. Well, you know, I looked at the Trump stats, but at the same time, here, here's, I'm going to give you one takeaway. Let's, Celeste, give you another. It's the main one. 60% of the registered voters who were polled said they think that President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election is legitimate, and 34% think his win is not legitimate. But when you break it down by party, and that's where it gets interesting, Democrats, 98% say it was legitimate, 2% think the election 
uh, let's see, 98 to 2%. Yeah, think that Biden's election was uh, a legitimate versus uh, not. And Republicans, 70% think it was, uh, was, let's see, 70% think it was not legitimate, the reverse there. Yeah, you know, those are those are really sort of stunning numbers. I'm trying to remember back to when you would have have had that large a segment of the population just think that what we went through through this entire election season just wasn't real, was completely made up. I mean, you know, what what do you think of that? 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We try to take as many of your calls as we can. And also, uh, just in the previous segment, speaking to Mike Watley from the uh, National Restaurant Association. Do you work in the restaurant industry? What are you doing if your restaurant is closed? How are you getting by? How are you taking care of your family? 212-209-2877. And I just want to spend this next minute before, because I never want to forget this. I'm not wearing my WBAI face mask right now so you can hear me on the radio, but I did contribute to BAI, and I'm hoping you can as well so I could get another face mask because I got two of them now because you're supposed to wash them. Remember to wash them. I always and, do. And it show, it supports our station. Remember, we're not commercial. We're not corporate. We've been around for 60 years. We want to be around for another 60, and we do that through your contributions. Absolutely. So the best way to do it, it's real easy. Just go to our website, WBAI.org, and you can click Ways to Donate, WBAI.org. You can also give us a call, 516-620-3602, and you can do what Jeff and I have done, which is become a BAI buddy. And that's when you give a recurring donation in the name of your favorite program. Hopefully, it's Driving Forces, City Watch, which is Jeff's other program, a close second maybe, but we have, you know, a ton of great programs here on BAI and you can become a BAI buddy and give continuing support uh, in any amount that you choose, but a recurring donation, very easy to set up. Just go to WBAI.org and click ways to donate. And Celeste, I'm glad you mentioned City Watch because uh, I will do a little tease for it for this coming Sunday. I have uh, New York City Council member Brad Lander joining me. He recently announced that he's running for New York City controller. And you know how much I know about that controller's office having worked there for eight years. So I'll have some mm-hmm. very specific questions. And given some of the news that we've heard this week about divesting from, from correct fossil fuel companies, uh, I will be asking about where he would want if he's in, you know, if he leads those pension funds, if he has members on those pension funds, where he would guide them towards uh, investing and not investing. Also joining him though, I'm trying to do this as much as possible given how much our, the cultural sector has been affected. Uh, I was recently introduced to uh, the new executive director of the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Corona, Queens. So I've invited her on to talk about the museum. It's not been able to uh, reopen yet amid the pandemic, uh, but they do an amazing uh, job. And I just cannot wait to talk to her about what is what are in her archives. Yeah, that's that's going to be amazing. So uh, City Watch, great program. Uh, Driving Forces, obviously, we're here for you Thursdays uh, at 5. Try to give you a good hour of politics, news, public policy, you know, stuff that you care about. So if you want to support WBAI, and you should, uh, holidays, always a great time to give. Uh, our number is 516-620-3602 to give 516 620 or just go to WBAI.org. So, Celeste, 
I know that we only have what under three minutes left, but you and I have had some conversations about what we want to do with upcoming shows. And there are some topics I know that you'd like to address that we really should uh, talk. Just talk a little about some of the issues you would like to discuss in the coming weeks and into 2021. Yeah, well, one of the things that we were talking about, certainly as we start to hear more about the vaccine and about uh, distribution, you know, a couple of things uh, I think that would make a really great show, and I know people will call in about, is, you know, equity and justice in the distribution of the vaccine. Who gets it? When do they get it? How many do they get? You know, that's uh, that's something that's really important, and I know New Yorkers care about that uh, a lot. And I think that, you know, we also want to talk about, frankly, and this is something that came up um, on the program last week when I had callers, was do people trust the vaccine? And we've seen polling. I think uh, also Quinnipiac uh, came out with some statistics on this, um, but a bunch of places have done have done polling on this. You know, whether people are ready to get the vaccine when it does become available, or are they concerned that it might not be safe? Um, you know, are people concerned about vaccines in general? Um, there is in this country, like it or not, and anti-vaccine movement. I'm not talking about the, you know, I'm not talking about the idea that people want to know that the drugs that they are, um, that they are exposed to are healthy or that there is, you know, liability for companies that put out drugs that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but you know, the idea of whether vaccines are safe generally. So that's something I'd love to talk about here on BAI with you, Jeff. And I'm glad you mentioned that because you you touched on Quinnipiac, that poll that came out yesterday. Basically, three quarters of the people who were polled said that they had been infected themselves or they know someone who is infected by the coronavirus. It's just astounding. I mean, in my life, nearly everyone I have a conversation with, if they have not been touched by this, someone in their family has. So, you know, it, it's it's astounding on this. So I know we've got to wrap up. It's your first show back with me. Uh, so you get to close today. Well, wow. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. And I want to thank everybody who's listening to the program. Also want to thank uh, our guests today. We had two great guests on sort of different topics. Uh, we had uh, Sean Donovan. He has just announced that he is seeking the mayoralty of the city of New York. We also heard from Mike Watley of the National Restaurant Association about how uh, closures in the restaurant business are, you know, making making life tough for a lot of people. So just remember that Jeff on Sunday is going to be on City Watch. Uh, he's going to have of, uh, City Councilman Brad Lander. He's also going to look at the Louise Armstrong House Museum in Corona, Queens. Uh, and we will have a lot more on that for you. It'll be a good show. Please tune in. Uh, City Watch with Jeff on Sunday. I think we are actually off next Thursday, but we will be back on Christmas and New Year's Eve. So, you know, that's that's what you guys mean to us here at Driving Forces. We want to be with you even on the most special of holidays. And happy Hanukkah to everybody. If you missed happy any Hanukkah. part of this program, look it up on WBAI in the archives section. See you on the radio.